All right. Uh, how's everybody feeling today? Doing well. Feeling fine. Just lounging yeah. in my yeah. Lounging in my chaise. You know, I've had attendants coming to me uh, frequently <laughs> with various sort of trays full of delicacies. I've been given the water treatment several times a day, and um, I'm just wrapped up in hot or cold towels depending on the time of day. <laughs> so are you in the here in, here in Davos you- Platz? On my Are you in the uh, coronavirus hotel, Phil? In, in the canton of Graubünden. <laughs> oh my god! It's like one thing to make jokes about how people were just gonna fuck off to a Swiss chalet to ride this out. It's another thing to see the headline actually come up. You know what I mean? See, the thing is, in the Magic Mountain, at least they were having interesting conversations. There's no interesting conversations going on at Davos Plots now. <laughs> well, yeah, because you have to self-isolate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> some of these rooms uh, are beautiful that are being offered in a sort of Swiss luxury Airbnb. At Le Bijou in Switzerland. Yeah. So, um, surprisingly, the, to the bewilderment of many, it seems like uh, even luxury hotels aren't full when there's a global pandemic that also affects rich people. Like there was something, there was like some article in the Washington post about how Bijou had this innovative experience in Switzerland or whatever bullshit. What is the innovative piece? What is the experience piece? Well, they're operating, uh, they're offering coronavirus isolation packages, you know? So like, yeah, the innovative experience is basically just a quarantine package where you can, um, (laughs) have some additional isolate like social distancing and isolation services within their existing um, luxury apartments including private doctors stuff like that yeah and they were so surprised they said that when um you know the like state said you know we have to shut down tourism to protect people's health that their <laughs> revenues went down <laughs> so yeah. confusingly unusual you know, because I can think we just when, convince them that the most luxury treatment is that we isolate them, take their bank account information, and then just drain their funds. <laughs> that yeah. could do it. I mean, I think that sounds good, right? Yeah, it's I've been just, advocating for like a FinDom scheme for just ever. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the fact that normally when these types of things happen, right, it doesn't really affect a certain, shall we say, type of person or uh-huh. a certain type of net worth, right? You mm-hmm. know, those people still have travel yeah. normally. They have private travel. They have private Private $500 Corona tests in uh, in room, right. in, in, in stay, in room, you bed and hire, breakfast and coronavirus test. You can hire a 24-7 personal nurse. Yeah. Unclear whether the nurse will be in the room with you or not. Unclear what happens if the, you know, both of you need to be quarantined. Do you then share your quarters with the nurse? At these strata, you know? at, at these strata of the economy, it just depends on your kink. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, but it got me thinking. I'm like, what are like other additional amenities that like, let's say death panel is going to open their very own 
Swiss chalet. Like sanatorium yeah. situation. Yeah. What are some additional amenities well that we could offer? With, because get well with the death panel. TBH, I feel like just, you know, like, yes. Okay. So basically what you get in these suites is that you have access to a kitchen so you can cook your own food, right? Like these people mm-hmm. do that. Specific, right? They have specific um, extra special delivery of room service, uh-huh. right? You can um, have a COVID test in your own house. Or in your own hotel room. You're sweet. Yeah. You're sweet. Um, doctors will perform house calls and um, you can have a 24-7 nurse and you will be in this um, sort of Bond villain chalet. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, even beyond, I think that, I think. Um, that seems like a, not very much for, for $8,000 a night. No. Also, though, it's funny because this there, it's one thing to be like, oh, haha, like rich people services or whatever, like luxury services. The. The funny thing here, that, not the funny thing really, but like the kind of distressing thing here though is that um, is in some ways like how it's being sold. So like obviously, you know, uh, hotels don't typically, you know, uh, offer health services. They don't typically, hotels no. don't typically <laughs> have like a bunch of nursing staff on hand. Yeah, like next to the massages and the hot stone, <laughs> right. you know, the mud bath. It's like, you know, the, it li- live in doctors. Like HIV yeah. screenings, quarterly blood work, yeah, <laughs> metabolic but the, panel. But um, it's funny because they, so they've partnered with another company, which is a independent, like a, like a private health clinic for the, for the wealthy um, in Switzerland called Double Check. Um, and I was looking into double this. Check? Yeah. First of all, it's interesting because it, but let's just double check. Yeah. Science well, it's there. kind of the it's, public doctors give you an answer you don't like. Get a private second. No, no literally. Actually, <laughs> no, literally. That there's sounds a thing. like what it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's a thing on their website that states we can accompany you to appointments with medical specialists to ensure that the stress of the situation <laughs> doesn't mean you fail to register or question their advice. <laughs> so literally. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So you called it B. But um, it's funny. What? Well, it's not funny. It's very dark and actually quite sad. But they say one of the ways that they uh, advertise this double check integration um, through the Lubijou Hotel is uh, this is a quote from like the top of the the uh, website tab where they talk about their coronavirus ser- mm-hmm. services. Uh, quote: You don't need to expose yourself to infected patients and hospital infections. Together with our healthcare partner, DoubleCheck, we provide medical checkups and coronavirus tests inside your Lubijou apartment. So, yeah. Wait, I, that okay. way is darker than I, far yeah. darker than I imagined. Yeah, I think we wanted this as a, as a cute cal- palate cleanser at the beginning. And, oops. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, what are additional it? amenities, like body disposal if you die in the unit? Oh, like, I don't know. Burial services morgue. for free. Number like, one. Are you supposed to go here if you already have coronavirus or if you don't, if you're That's trying to question. hide from the That's poor people question. who have coronavirus? If you just want to get away from it all, you know? Right. So don't get it. I don't get that. Secondly, okay, if you aren't sick and you are going here, don't you think like riding an airplane to get to this hotel would pretty much ensure that you are sick by the time you get but there. Vince, not if so you like, got a private jet, Vince. Yeah, these people are, they're, they're not flying commercial, or if they are, they're only flying, not merely in the upstairs, but the third floor of the plane. <laughs> right. There's a third I, floor? Oh, you've never, you've never heard about the third floor? Jesus oh. Christ. But I've then, never lived in a house that's more than one story. How are there airplanes that are three I'm just, stories I'm, tall? <laughs> Literally, never, never lived in a house with stairs in my life. Yeah. That's for wealthy people. There's it's stairs tops. outside the house into the building. 
Jesus no, I was Christ. once on a plane. I was like, went to a conference and it was like one of those things where like the, um, the conference like pays for your flight or whatever. And they're like, but please do the economy, whatever thing. And I was flying, flying back. And I saw the, um, saw somebody as a famous STS scholar, uh, also at the conference, like on the way back. And, and I was like, Oh, maybe we'll be sitting near one another or something like that. He's like, Oh, you're not, you're not sitting, uh, you're not sitting upstairs though. <laughs> I'm sitting upstairs. And I'm like, there's an yeah. upstairs. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. As I said, I feel like there are more amenities that should be included in this situation for the price. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, not, not, a, a, good, not a good deal. I mean, not a buy. Having, <laughs> having stayed in more luxury hotel suites than I'd care to admit for art travel <laughs> stuff. Um, not that I paid for just to clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I think frankly, the, the, the luxury hotel market, the international luxury hotel market is an incredible racket, just Im- Im- for sure. immeasurably, yeah. uh, overpriced for the, for the things that you actually get in most of these suites. So yeah. anyway, oh, but, but I mean, God. also like, I, mean, I wonder if this is going to, portend the the emergence or the fusion of the two fields like hotelier and health and like the sanatorium is like i'm surprised that sanatorium hasn't come back sooner i think that's the re-emergence they they exist still yeah Yeah. well i it it was i was trying to think about what the most famous one in the united states was it was probably like the battle creek but the battle creek sanitarium in michigan which was run by the guy who invented kellogg's cornflakes Oh right, yeah. yeah. And that one was all about um, like giving yourself enemas. Enemas, a lot of enemas given to the rich. But (laughs) the Great Depression forced it to close, and then they turned it into an army hospital. It's great. Oh yeah. Oh word. This might be a good time to maybe just like start the episode in earnest. Yeah. What do you guys think? (laughs) Let's do it. Welcome to the Death Panel, a podcast from the continuity of Government Commission at Brookings and AEI. (laughs) (laughs) You can support the show at Patreon.com/slash/DeathPanelPod. Sounds good. That's a real thing, so by the what, way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was just googling that right now. That's, that's a Norm Ornstein joint, right? Should I should I read uh, the description of sure. what it is? Yeah. So, um, in the aftermath of the nine eleven attacks, the American Enterprise Institute, aka AEI, and Brookings. Um, convened a continuity of government commission to study how the United States could be prepared for a situation when government officials were either killed or incapacitated. Um, they uh, released a report in May 2003 that basically gives like a plan for how Congress can ensure that like it still functions in the event of a pandemic. So that'll hmm. be interesting to see if any of those things actually get implemented. That plays yeah. out. Considering where well, it's think, coming from, highly likely, yeah. I'd say. I think you most know? of it was for. I don't. I don't think even they were like thinking through stuff for viral transmission. I think there is a pandemic section for Congress specifically gotcha. because of the um, potential disease vector of Congress. Structurally speaking, right. Although um, there's technically still not any sort of like constitutional basis to make it easy for remote voting for, uh, for. Yeah, right. I mean, people, this right. is maybe a good transition into like our first topic, and I mm-hmm. I don't think we should spend like too much time on this. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially yeah. because the text of the bill is not currently available at the time of recording. So, and I don't think we sh- we are expecting to have it be made available. Right, in but the by next like the next hours. episode or so, we'll yeah, uh, so we'll uh, whenever they hammer it out, we'll be able to talk about it in full because it seems like there's a lot of fuckery going on here. Yeah, I was gonna say safe to say. Yeah, another another good reason to become a patron. 
so that you Safe can have a discussion. It's gonna be garbage. No, didn't you read the New York Times? It's the biggest, best bill ever. <laughs> yeah, so they've finished negotiations in the Senate of some kind. It's apparently being pushed to the floor, though there might be more hiccups, right? And we have a couple ideas of what's in the bill. Mm-hmm. As Vince was saying, it's um, not amazing. And uh, there are a couple things that are also like completely up in the air. So we have a lot of questions about it, and it's stuff that we're going to have to get into once we know more. But Does, does it anyone... raise questions? Sorry. <laughs> there are a couple ones. I mean, I, like one of my one of my biggest questions about this whole situation is that, you know, the I think on our most recent episode, we talked about the Republican plan initially, how it had been sort of like means tested. And so lower income people got less money. Right. Now it's sort of blanket uh, individuals under seventy five thousand dollars per year. Um, or Which is still technically a means test. Which is, but, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, tested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or um, couples making $150,000 a year or less um, will get this $1,200 payment. And then if you qualify for that, you get like $500 per qualifying child additionally, yeah. and it's a one-time payment. Now, what I'm confused about, and I think is something to watch, is that they sort of, in a lot of the press releases and statements from representatives, they have sort of alluded to the fact, or senators rather, they've alluded to the fact that there's sort of potentially other things that could restrict your qualification mm-hmm. despite the income. Right. So the um, thing that I'm curious about and that has, in everything that I've read, seems very vague is, does it apply to me, right? Like, does it apply to 1099 workers? It does. It does. It does. does it? Um. It does, but does it stack on SSDI, SSI? Yeah, right. Does it stack on existing social welfare programs? If you're receiving, you know, if you're a TANF recipient, Mm -hmm. are you ineligible? That's the kind of stuff that I'm curious about that I wouldn't be surprised could potentially be in like in it because I do know that it's a compromise between Senate Democrats and Republicans. And we know also that uh, I think as of last week or the or maybe it was in discussions over um, the the sort of like first maybe it was the first bill. Um, there were, mm-hmm. there were like public statements around that time saying like, okay, well if we do, like I think Nancy, Nancy Pelosi even herself did, did say something like, Oh, we want to make sure that it doesn't fuck up benefit structures for like SSDI and SSI, uh, recipients. Right. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if that means that they basically say like, Oh, well if you're a, if you're a current SSI or SSDI recipient, then you just don't get anything. Well, you're already subsisting on these poverty, yeah. um, right. handouts from the government. Yeah. Why do you need more this month? Because you already subsist on Because obviously all these people already need more money. Right. Um, right. And, and like to, as a baseline to begin with. And now we're also in the depth of a crisis. And so many of these people, are going to be exactly the people who are going to be most vulnerable. If anything, you would want to give them more money. There's also right. the mm-hmm. issue of like the fact that this is contingent on having filed tax returns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, right. And get ready for this too. It just dropped uh, basically that it just came out that um, essentially the, their method of dispersing these payments mm-hmm. will be mm-hmm. that if you filed a tax return with a like bank routing and account number attached to it or whatever so they can do like a wire either a return or for you to send um, then you'll get it sent as a wire like mm-hmm. relatively soon, but anyone else who doesn't have a bank o- account on file, which as we know, is lots of people don't, not just, not just a ton of people, right. Not just a ton of people who aren't on file, but who don't, a ton of people who don't have bank accounts. Those people could have to wait as much as four months to even like oh submit an application right. to get it. And, and, and you also know that it's, it's not coming. The earliest will be May. <laughs> 
So this is well, they, they said they didn't say where the direct deposits could go through shortly after signage. So who knows what that means exactly? Right. Um, again, this all this stuff. The the information here is vague, but these are sort of like the things that we're watching for. Well, another way of thinking about this is just that the in a piece of legislation like this, the devil is absolutely in the details, and there are yeah. a lot of details, and b- there are more details because we have decided to make or Congress has decided to make the legislation further means tested and contingent. Uh, mm-hmm. And they have issued the principle of universalism. That's why th- yeah. there are more details for the devil to live in. And mm-hmm. so beyond the fact that this is legislation that's being pumped through very quickly, you, we don't get uh, text of legislative text of amended legislation. There are a lot of amendments um, themselves. They come through rather quickly. And then when you read the coverage, um, it is very vague at best. Um, yeah. Even even right. the sources that I really rely on for like, deep in the inside baseball of Congress, like roll call, very vague right. description of what's going mm. on. And so like just the idea that people are going to sell this as the biggest thing, you know, the, the, the biggest bailout of the biggest stimulus package <laughs> ever is, is so, is so ludicrous or even the fact that they're mm-hmm. going to call it a stimulus, right? Because it's not really, that's really not what we, that's not the that's way to not think what it about is. it. Right. right. I mean, yeah. like you, the, the stimulus phrase you know, we're not trying to stimulate demand like that in a, in a recession, t- typical recession, you're, you're trying to stimulate demand. What we're trying to do now is maintain, help people maintain and support so that they can weather the, uh, weather the crisis. Um, right. it's not just about like stimulating, uh, demand in the economy. In fact, we want people to not go out and, uh, you know, <laughs> buy it. Yeah. Right. We're we're trying to get people to literally stay at home and and sort of maintain. So this idea that like people are just trying to treat this as if it were just the 2008 financial crisis on steroids. But it's not. It's a public health crisis that is has the is is going to be spilling over into an, you know, an economic uh, recession, possibly a depression. The the prospect put it super, super well when they just said this is like a four point three trillion dollar bazooka aimed directly at CEOs. Yeah, Yeah, that was like spot fucking on, um, which is that like this isn't a one point eight trillion dollar, you know, bailout. Basically, it's a six trillion dollar bailout. And almost all of that six trillion dollars is essentially aimed at big businesses. Yeah, I mean, the Indian Health Service gets like a measly one billion dollars towards their mm-hmm. infrastructure, while every single other hospital in the United States gets a hundred billion dollars to divide yeah. amongst themselves. Yeah. Well, and also like fundamentally, all of these things can be, you know, Phil Phil mentioned, for example, that people are going to like start basically meaninglessly calling this or oh, the biggest bailout in history or like the biggest uh, the biggest uh, what is it um, economic stimulus, stimulus package. package. Yeah, yeah, economic stimulus package in history and like. Something can be, quote unquote, like in terms of raw numbers, the biggest economic stimulus bill in history, but also fundamentally be either a the totally wrong uh, reaction to this or be also fundamentally underperforming in what it would actually need to do to mm-hmm. you know have some of those effects, which is like to, again, uh, yeah. keep people in a position where they are in any way like safe to stay home or mm-hmm. safe to like where it's like safe to continue or like, it's more like keeping people who feel pressured to return to work who shouldn't return to work like a lot of domestic workers right, right? like yeah. they mm-hmm. should not be forced to return to work absolutely right? and 
ultimately a lot of them are right now because their employers who might be middle managers are also getting laid off because it's not just the lower employees who are subject to this. And I think ultimately this is really shaking out to be not only a public health crisis, but a international labor crisis as well. And I think that that's really, really clear also in this bill because Bernie was able to apparently slip in some of his unemployment initiatives, which would expand unemployment insurance to people like Vince, who are 1099 workers, gig economy workers as well. Um, It would be an additional increased weekly payment of $600 on top of like whatever the state already pays, which is great. Um, However, though, the other thing that I'm like, the other open point that I think is something to watch is that um, three of our lovely representatives or senators rather, um, have decided that there is a drafting error in the unemployment portion of the bill that is massive and needs to be immediately fixed. And uh, one of those people is Lindsey Graham, uh, who, along with Ben Sass and Tim Scott, put out a press release saying that there's a massive drafting error in the stimulus bill that would prevent them from fast-tracking it because something about the unemployment insurance disincentivizes a return to work. What? Sure. So he's like, there's a drafting error because it helps all these poor people. That's not a drafting error. That's a drafting feature. Yeah. He said, if it's not a drafting error, then it is quote, the worst idea I have seen in a long time. So I have a huge feeling. Again. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a sort of like ongoing scenario and we we should not continue to spend too much time on this but that's actually an extremely good uh way because to me that sounds like oh they're they're actually having a they're it sounds like they're starting to get on message than the republicans in the uh the idea of just you know going ahead with the uh quote-unquote reopening of the economy Mm -hmm. um which i think is what we wanted to uh address a little bit more so this this restaurant got like a public health violation we're going to be reopening this restaurant right (laughs) yeah as possible. I think we're seeing like a big rallying cry that it's like, let's not be too hasty in saving people's lives lest we make decisions that can't be undone, that have right. future implications on the health of the economy. <laughs> Fuck the people. The economy right. is the ultimate like alpha and omega and that must remain. You I, know? I know that there's been a lot of uh, like ink and blood spilled over uh, this, this whole thing over the last couple of days of, you know, conservatives basically saying like, we need to make it like actually Trump himself saying like, we can't make the, uh, the cure worse than the disease or whatever. Exactly. Um, but I think my favorite, my favorite like microcosm of this, uh, this whole thing and this sort of like perverse way of thinking about, uh, human health and lives and like the economy of our like of not even just like not even liter- uh, I was gonna say citizens but like of residents like people mm-hmm. just around um, my favorite microcosm of this is this image from a, a Cuomo press conference from like uh, I think over the weekend or maybe Monday where he's like he's got this PowerPoint slide up uh, that has like a little seesaw graphic. I actually, I posted it to Twitter mm. if anyone wants to look at the, the image, but it has this little seesaw graphic. It's like a, like a weight, like scale, right? Like a weight, mm-hmm. um, like a, you know, uh, justice is blind style scale. Um, cool. so on one, on one side, it says protect lives on the other side. It says economic viability and above, <laughs> above this scale graphic in huge letters, it says, Still figuring it out. <laughs> yep, that's society. <laughs> Which is right literally, now. yeah. A I visual swear to for, God, if I get, yeah, if I get us. one more DM 
that says thank God for Cuomo because he's really showing leadership right now. Yeah, leadership and cutting the yeah, that's, shit wait out of for Medicaid. That narrative. That, that narrative is already out there. <laughs> wait yeah. for it. I've been getting like 15 messages yeah. a day. Every fucking phone call I'm on checking in with someone except for literally my grandmother who voted for Trump. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like literally everyone that I've spoken to has praised Cuomo like second or third thing as if it's like they're well, but here's the silver lining. And I'm like, no, homie is trying to defund Medicaid still yeah, in the state of right. New York. He's like rejecting $6 billion of federal funding and pointing the finger at the administration. And, and then he today even rolled over and reversed that can I, opinion. Can, actually, can I, I know that we were, we're trying to transition, but can I pause on that for one second, this Cuomo Medicaid thing? Because I think it is really important, especially for a show like us, like the death panel to like, Mm-hmm. talk about this for one second. I mean, second. what other show is going to talk about it other than us? That's uh, unfortunately true. Yeah. So um, <laughs> here's here's the thing. So basically, uh, so the the general explanation for this is like, so Cuomo, months months ago, he, he appointed this panel of, of people, all, all, all people that he appointed, that like Cuomo appointees, basically, governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Because he's known for picking great people um, who accept bribes and, and, and uh, right. left and right have been That's convicted like, of corruption over the past like the six IDC. years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but okay, so he has, he's appointed this Medicaid redesign team, right? And the idea <laughs> behind the Medicaid redesign team uh, is basically to find uh, literally to cut Medicaid, like f- to find mm-hmm. places where they can cut Medicaid spending. Their their proposals so far have included some really bullshit things, like um, four hundred million dollars in uh, cuts to hospital payments um, by Medicaid, including two hundred and fifty million dollars alone to uh, to reduced payments to the uh, New York City health and hospital system, which is like literally on the front lines right now mm-hmm. um, of everything. Um, but just, just to point out his, okay. So his, the whole time, literally in like in February, there was a public hearing essentially. And he was, he was already at that point, um, like early February trying to sort of like sell this, uh, sell these Medicaid cuts as a way to, uh, put quote unquote, the skin in the game of, uh, of counties and like more local areas, essentially saying that like, you know, more funding would be up to, uh, not the state as a whole, but up to like, uh, count like counties and municipalities. This is part of his ongoing but, feud with the Blasio, though. right? Well, yeah. but the big like boogeyman for him was still federal funding. So he's right. he's basically kept the same exact line. But if you actually look at what he's he's saying about it now, either it's in it's, I mean it's probably both, but either it's incredibly insidious or he's just straight up lying to just keep the same line going. Because his big complaint right now is that. According to the bill that was passed last week for coronavirus relief, um, which would which would bump up, I think, Medicaid uh, payments out to states, but from the federal government by like 10 percent or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to him, New York uh, state would not qualify to get that extra federal money um, because of and the only thing that people have been able to see that he's probably referring to is because of uh, Section 6008, Paragraph B, uh, stating that. Uh, state may not receive the extra funding if it changes Medicaid, quote, eligibility standards, methodologies, or procedures. And so people have pointed out that this was the same exact language, uh, which he's saying basically that, like, because they want to have the Medicaid redesign team work on mm-hmm. this package mm-hmm. uh, to, like, cut Medicaid, that these proposals, enacting these proposals would invalidate uh, New York from receiving further federal funding from mm-hmm. this coronavirus relief bill. 
So the same exact language was included in the 2008 recovery bill. Right. And New York still cut Medicaid that year. So that means that actually the only thing left, like logically speaking, and there's a, like, I can maybe link to some things about this, but the only thing left logically speaking to make that defensible, a defensible position, if that's his argument is that the Medicaid redesign team plans to change eligibility requirements and make it so that like it's uh, like, for instance, that like the income level is heightened. Right, right. I mean, uh, even or still add the- work requirements or something. But I mean, isn't this just I mean, whatever. His argument makes no sense at all. Right. Right. It makes none. <laughs> it, it's it's so Batman logic shit. But it, this has to be about like the New York state bond ratings. Doesn't it <laughs> like Explain. 2019 was the first time I, <laughs> in a really long time that like the credit rating agencies boosted the New York state uh, credit ratings. And I would imagine that by like imposing austerity, he's just hoping the credit rating, like the bow before the gods, of the credit rating agencies, and they will sub, you know, supplicate and you will be rewarded. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it, stupid the, as fucking. but the way that they the way that he was even able to do that is by like denying and pulling out of like state funding for public infrastructure projects. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Well, he's been going around saying he said, quote, uh, um, New York had contracted blank check syndrome. Yeah, well, he uh, is chronically pay to play so he can go fuck himself. Can I just say one thing? I just yeah. would like to say one thing. Um, I had a professor who's dead now who was a Italian guy. And he was very funny and um, he was my color teacher, Gianberto Vanni. So he would always joke that after living in New York, he realized that New Yorkers are the nicest, most generous, most trusting and caring people in the world. But that he realized why everyone thought that New Yorkers were mean and rude and short um, not short, like physically, but like, you know, in conversation yeah. or whatever. Correct. And that he realized that after 9 11. And he said that that New Yorkers are so angry because every time there's a catastrophe or a disaster or a tragedy in New York, the entire country takes their worst leader and makes him a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. So please friends, let's not do that again. Yeah. Say no to Andrew Cuomo. Yes. (laughs) Just had to get that out there. I'm sorry. I, I have to say, I think it's like an important statement yeah you know you know rudy giuliani right now don't remember that guy remember that guy don't remember mike bloomberg remember when all you called <laughs> like, him america's yeah. mayor and we were like no 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mike bloomberg bill de blasio will attempt to do it as well andrew cuomo's reputation it's like olive garden is america's italian restaurant <laughs> it is <laughs> okay. it's the same problem yeah you know oh. anyways um you know so why i think that's a good uh yeah like that's a good sort of segue into our our discussion Cuomo aside we're picking back up the conversation about restarting the economy yeah right which is basically the bottom line is that the rich are going to try and force us all to go back to work in the midst of a public pandemic right mm-hmm. a viral pandemic and Global it was really virus. It, was, it was really easy to convince Trump of that because he's probably just stuck in the White House and bored. Or losing like, money. Yeah, just losing money he's on his losing uh, a lot of money. hotels and casinos. But whatever. I mean, this isn't just about Trump. There are plenty of people out there, plenty of people out there saying this, right? The, the chief political analyst at ABC, Matthew Dowd. Oh boy. <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. a point at which the economy will have to open back up. And then of course, all of these analogies to like car crashes, right? Well, we have so many car yeah. crashes a year and like, you know, 
there are a lot of deaths and we don't stop the economy over that. And uh, <laughs> yeah. this person has paid a lot of money to be ABC's top political analyst. So uh, when's the last time you got a car crash from uh, someone coughing on you? <laughs> yeah, when's the last time? I mean, the other thing is, yeah, this is just this is a line of analysis that's just idiotic. And we're going to hear more of it and we're going to hear more of it, especially as employers begin to experience the sort of first effects and the effects of Congress not really doing a good job or any kind yeah. of job at, you know, I, I would say pausing the economy rather than saying a stimulus, right. like making a yeah. pause possible. And we're already starting to see some of the what this is going to look like uh, at uh, Liberty. I always like the, the the idea that like the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Well, the future right, right now is like <laughs> Liberty University, right? <laughs> so, uh Yeah. That's uh, what's happening there. Like Jerry Falwell has basically said to everyone like, oh, yeah, faculty, staff, students, just just go the fuck back to school. Yeah, he's just going to lose revenue over this. Basically, I'm not paying for Zoom licenses. Right. Yeah. He's, re- he's, re- he's manually reopening the school despite objections from the mayor and public health officials like in the surrounding area or in the community where the school is physically located. And despite um, outcry from parents and faculty because you know, there are no cases in the city that he's in. So why? um, Well, but, but I mean, in his defense though, they (laughs) already make the uh, kids of different ethnicities stay six feet away from each other at that school. So, (sighs) Right, right. I did. I I actually, I forgot to send this to you, Vince, but I sent Artie and Phil a really, really fantastic take from a (laughs) horrible alt-right YouTuber where he implied that white people were immune to COVID. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was that guy who was like, Australia doesn't have many cases because it's mostly white. Yes. Oh, boy. You think their testing is the way to go, but the testing is just a bunch of bureaucratic waste and a way for pharma companies to upcharge. Just, Australia has no cases, not because of testing, but because they're all white people. Like, yeah. what? Um, what? Sir, are you okay? This is just reminding me of how, I mean, actually speaking of, of the uh, continuity of government, uh, what is it, committee or something like that? Um, this is just making me think of the, I was reading a, a little bit about um, the possibility or plausibility like constitutional plausibility of remote voting for congress earlier Mm -hmm. um and one of the hypotheticals in an article that i read was like let's say like something happens and a disease vector spreads spreads through democrats and they're all forced to stay home uh you know it creates a possibility where like congress could still essentially have a quorum but then republicans are able to like ram through a bunch of legislation and ironically i feel like based on the i don't know trade winds blowing here um it's more likely to be i mean it's more likely that that particular example would happen the other way around except for then i also just can't see democrats being in a position to even if it would be vetoed where they would actually even take an oppor- take that as an opportunity to ram through something like i don't know medicare for all or a green new deal yeah i feel like if that happened nancy pelosi would just be like we gotta stay strong with our with our uh friends here at now, this time folks, we're not, not gonna make a mistake we can't undo when no, this is all you, over you and you you're gonna vote as though you're republicans i know you want to anyway this is solidarity right am i doing solidarity i wonder sort of tack us back towards like the sort of main topic <laughs> of this section of the podcast, which is the um, 
you know, Mr. Gorbachev, please reopen this economy <laughs> uh, section of the programming. You know, I wonder, like, what most of these elites would say, like, what's his name from ABC News? If you ask them to put, like, a tangible material number on the amount of poor people that they deem to be okay to die, right? You know, right. they keep saying, like, let don't let the cure be worse than the disease, right? That there's a certain amount of acceptable death in the service of the continuity of the capital E economy. And I wonder if you ask them for a real number, if they would take you seriously enough to speculate it and offer a number. See, the issue with Matthew Dowd is both that he is immoral and stupid. Um, because he's stupid because he's immoral because, I mean, he's Matthew Dowd. He sold the Iraq war. Am I right? Um, and he's going to sell mass death again. Um, that's what they pay him for. The, uh, he's, he's stupid because the artful case to be made for this, um, reopening the economy thing is he'll say, you know, people are going to die from other things. If we, you know, uh, don't reopen the economy, they'll, you know, uh, poverty will increase and, and we'll see all kinds of other sort of nasty, uh, effects. People will kill themselves and, 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 and so on. Right. The, but the, the key thing that which he's, is also true, but not the point. I was going to say that's which the is line also that true, but again, kind of that's the whole but, reason that you have yeah, I don't yeah. know a government that does counter cyclical policy of any kind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we have the Federal I mean, Reserve. Yeah, he is pretty stupid. That's true. I mean, I, like one of the things that I can't stop thinking about is like, ironically, like I think Phil a couple of weeks ago you said you were like reading like John Donne or something or. And I've been thinking about there's this like Oppenheimer thing that's not the often quoted Oppenheimer thing about um, the Trinity tests, which is the like, you know, the destroy of worlds, destroy of worlds things. It's this other part. He said his great takes on Buddhism. Yes. True. Well, there's this other thing he said. Basically, I guess John Donne was the like favorite uh, poet of his mistress who committed suicide right before the Trinity tests. And so he like kind of named the Trinity tests after her but was like reading a lot of done at the time and sort of had his like awakening and thought of the, you know, destroyer of worlds line. But then like in his diary goes into this long section where he starts talking about John Donne saying that every death is a massacre. And he starts to think and write about, you know, the broad implications of what he's done. And he recounts sort of step by step the conversations he had with all the other scientists leading up to it down to the point where they all, you know, separated into bunkers, lie down on the floor with their feet facing the bomb, covered their heads and started counting down, at which point a colleague like one of his his number two turns the other one and says, are you scared? And he goes, no, when they get to eight and he is like, yeah, actually, maybe we shouldn't do this, but they do it anyways. Right. And in that moment, like we completely changed the entire bow, like pow- like power balance in the whole world, right? And then mm-hmm. we went on to bomb Japan. And we are in a similar scenario where like yeah, you could get up there and argue for a second Nagasaki, right? Like and that's essentially what a lot of these people are doing is they're getting up there and saying that there are that no, every death is not a massacre, that some lives are expendable in the you know process of the continuity of state right but i think your point though is that i thought your point was and i think this is this is right is that like they once you start forcing them down the track of having to say how many lives are expendable right. and whose lives are expendable like it becomes much more untenable they have to maintain it at a level of um abstraction 
and because granularity is their enemy here, at least you know yeah. rhetorically well, speaking. Mm-hmm. Now there are other people like Dan Patrick. I think was that was maybe the more interesting thing because here he is explicitly making the wartime analogy and saying like we're mm-hmm. you know we're going to have to ask older people to like sacrifice themselves yeah. uh, to this or like Oof. the federalists right. saying that like we need to have people who are like voluntarily going to commit to being Ready infected. to die for their country right yeah. which is why i think this is such a good parallel because it's like these scientists prepared for the which fact that they could doctors die and nurses right now right the yeah way. they prepared right. for the fact that they could die they went through the whole like we have to be in separate locations and small teams in case of an accident they did prepared for all the eventualities they were on the floor covering their heads and not until the countdown did one of them turn to the other and ask if they were afraid and if what they were doing was right, you know, yeah, like mm-hmm. and that's that's part of the problem that we're facing right now is that like, you know, our elected leaders are not asking themselves this question and they're not thinking in the terms that are like, you know, appropriate for the scenario. I do. I mean, I do want to point out one thing, though, uh, really quickly, which is that uh, just to respond to Phil's earlier point about um, it becomes more untenable. Once you start demanding of these people who are saying, oh, one must lay down their life for uh, for the economy in the in the face of uh, coronavirus, et cetera, at the like, while I agree that it's like that should absolutely like is and probably like probably is and should absolutely be the moment at which uh, it becomes untenable when they actually have to start sort of listing the explicit people that they think are deserving of uh, like implicitly laying down their lives, people like Amazon factory workers, for example, right. doctors right. and nurses right now, as I just mentioned, um, the people that who being clean said hospital rooms. to, I mean, to kind of reference back to our, our last episode. And if you're not a patron, uh, become one, check it out. Um, the two futures episode. The problem is I think when those demands are asked of like, okay, well you think that you think that people should lay down their lives for the economy. Like who exactly do you think is expendable? The more, the like the the more permissible and the more uh, appropriate it becomes for people to begin listing those groups of people. Yeah. The the deeper that we go into the right. fascism exterminism yeah, uh, sure. side, and I I I think that's not to be discounted. That right. I mean, you know, I think that's why that's why I meant that my question was like, how many people? Mm-hmm. You know, right. because if you do if you do start saying who right, and this is the whole conversation around the labor issue component, which is who is entitled to hazard pay? Who is entitled to unemployment hmm. be- benefits? Who is entitled to the, the stimulus relief? It's like mm-hmm. every single time you start separating people into categories, and I know like everyone's going to be sick of me saying this over again, that is the fucking beginning of a eugenics project. Yeah. When we separate people into categories of worth and value, that is eugenics. And mm-hmm. when we divide the value of labor that way and decide... Who deserves to have like recompensation for being put out of work? We're also doing eugenics. I think right? that's right. I think the the thing that I'm uh, the, the thing that that's like tough to wrestle with here is you know keeping it at the level of abstraction of how many, which I think is maybe the right move here. You still get into this thing where people will then justify the terrible job that the United States does at you know um, mitigating the flu every year and say like that becomes the rationale for why it's okay that so right. many people are going to die in this like that's right. that to me is one of the more disturbing things like well we're already doing a shitty job at protecting human life here our our uh our uh, uh infant mortality rates are already some of the highest in the developed world we already have really low life expectancy in the united states and it's been <laughs> getting lower 
And so, of course, we're going to tolerate this because let's just face it, we don't really value life that much. Um, well, we don't even value it as much in, in practice as much as we say we do in OMB Circular A4. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, and one of the I mean, one of the first episodes that we ever did, this is before I or you, Phil, were uh, were part of the podcast. But one of the first ones that we ever did, we talked about um like the the we talked about like the precarity of work and people dying on the like factory like like on the warehouse Mm -hmm. floor Mm -hmm. of uh xpo logistics um and so like we're already we're already their stock is surging by the way i'm sure because like right and like you're saying we're already we have already such a you know disastrously poor disastrously uh poor safety net and we already treat people like so poorly i mean but like like Amazon has responded in part to this crisis by, um, you know they have they have this like the the employees of theirs that are not technically employees they're like gig economy workers who, you know mm-hmm. not the not necessarily even like the fully hired um no the people who pick up sh- on demand shifts for pa- uh, right. same day delivery like yeah exactly yeah. so it, it's like it's like contract pick workforce up same day packing to yeah shifts. exactly yeah. like all none of those people uh like qualify for sick leave. Um, mm-hmm. none of those people have like, you know, and so they, oh, they've and set up they're a, raising money. They're right, soliciting yes. donations from the general right. public so, towards a sick right. leave fund. Right. Exactly. Amazon the has set up like, in the world. a sick leave fund for its contract employees and they donated some money to it, but they're literally soliciting donations from average people. This is sick. Yeah. It's disgusting. So Meanwhile, disgusting. at my old store, shout out to all Whole Foods and Amazon employees everywhere. If you're listening to this and you are not a member of Whole Worker, just I highly... Just throw Washington Post in there too. Why not? And know, Washington Post, Anyone yes. in the land if of Bezos. If you are a Bezos uh, conglomerate employee and you are not a member of Whole Worker, please seek out our friends Whole Worker and join their organization and help try and organize to save your lives because they're doing a lot of work right now to protect employees. But yeah. there's not a lot to work with. In my old store at Whole Foods, um, the first ever case of a employee at Whole Foods who tested positive was at the store that I used to work at and reports in that story came out of people sobbing at work that they're terrified um having worked at that store the amount of like tourism that happens in the store and the sort of uh like social bleed of being in the Time Warner Center which is like sort of like a mall in Manhattan Mm -hmm. um is actually really terrifying to think mm. about it's like yeah. this store has the highest mm. visitor density in the country it's the most visited at whole foods in the united states i think or it was when i worked there mm-hmm. you know yeah so i think for the please for the love of god please stop ordering things online if you don't need them yeah. right that goes without saying like if it's not an absolute have to mm-hmm. you know <laughs> Please yeah. don't. No, no uh, COVID teenies and ordering bathing suits to convince yourself Amazon. to work out while you're at home. Yeah. 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 So, so I think, you know, in terms of this, this sort of labor angle that we're looking at COVID, right? Should we say that's kind of like how we're approaching it today? Uh, one, I mean, Partially. one of the ways. Yeah. It's so, kind of like the, I feel like this in some ways we've talked so much. We've spent so much of the last uh, couple of weeks uh, talking about the sort of like big picture political um, sphere and some of the uh, like policy things that we would want to see seized out of this moment, but also some of the things that appear to be, you know, possibly possibly on the verge of being taken away at this at this moment, uh, certain types of like civil liberties, et cetera. But I think that well, there's on one hand sort of the, the like the, the whole section of like labor and, and work under the under these conditions right, right. now um, and the like extreme 
extremely terrible situation that all, like all of these people are in. And then also in, in some ways it's like the, I think there's a conversation still to be had at, at a certain point about like the, the overall impact of, obviously we don't want to say like, oh, blanket reopen the economy or whatever, but there are certain like supply chain questions that have not bubbled up to the surface right. in mainstream media, I think. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, the situation that we face is that like the longer that Congress takes to put together a, um, relief package for day-to-day residents of the United States, yeah. right? Or the people who are stuck here maybe because they can't go home. The longer they wait, the more people are going to be able to be exploited by the situation by companies like Amazon and XBL Logistics. Yeah. Right? right. And I think that that's something that we have to take into account is that when they drag their feet, they're also enabling the exploitation of labor beyond sort of the immediate situation in that like so Amazon is hiring like 10,000 more employees right now to accommodate the fact that there's increased demand for shipping. And mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos ha- has said... Actually, 100,000. 100,000. Jesus Christ. Sorry, yeah. I read that wrong. It, uh, so Jeff Bezos has also come out publicly saying he placed a lot of orders for masks and they're just not showing up. Yeah. So <laughs> he's really sorry to all his employees, <laughs> even though he manages <laughs> the largest global logistics empire ever you'd think he's you'd so have some sorry power did right, you guys right. did you guys see that it's just um, taking too long to get shipping all the more reason to more amazonify the whole world did right? you guys well, see that uh elon musk tweet that was like yes we have ordered thousands of n95 masks um they are stuck in customs at lax airport and like the official lax airport twitter account uh like, like, no, we don't have re- respondent we're like we don't see any shipments uh for you held up at customs do you have like an invoice can we like <laughs> give us a po number can we we'll help you find, find this map, yeah right? exactly like, but maybe also, you could donate them when, to like, the california well, but also clearly throwing shade because he's lying yeah. but right anyway. well, also but like when you're getting called out by just like the generic <laughs> yeah. lax like Twitter, Listen. the Twitter intern for LAX Airport. Yeah, like get you know. your shit together. He's been he's been literally he almost lost the company over a fucking tweet. I mean, you'd think he would check himself more, but no, obvi, I would. No, <laughs> I think that ego is too solid to be checked. Yeah, TBH <laughs> by a crate full of N95 masks. Elon Musk is like LAX Airport's a pedo. <laughs> yes. The whole airport, the entire airport, the airport itself. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, really. Yeah, but it's like it, this is especially unacceptable coming from Jeff Bezos. So he wrote a letter to employees on Saturday, being like, "Oh, because of the global shortages of masks, I'm so sorry, I can't provide you with masks." That said, get the fuck back to work. Meanwhile, warehouse workers are still at the beginning of shifts, asked to do what are called "quote unquote" stand up meetings, where they stand shoulder to shoulder. Oh, um, oh so. is that how they can search their pockets or something? I don't know. Gee, I it's... wonder why you're seeing more cases of COVID at Amazon. I yeah, can't I wonder. imagine why that would be. Well, and <laughs> as we've talked about on past episodes, uh, they've already done all these sort of healthcare initiatives in order to <laughs> right. make sure that people get like um, seen by their special in-house paramedics whose yes, job it is to discourage further doc. care. Yeah. Maybe they should uh, partner with DoubleCheck. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> Bold goals, guys. Bold goals. Yeah. That's, Bold that's, goals that's and too synergy. High end. That's synergy. too high end for them, honestly. Yeah, they I can't, mean, they can't discharge people fast enough. If we do not change course radically and immediately, I think we should expect our first death on the production line in the next couple of news Week. cycles. No, I mean it seems clear that, frankly, simply by the inaction, even 
uh, like the the protracted inaction and uh, or it, delay even and well yeah. and in a, right and inability to like uh, to act to legislate around this. I mean, this is you know this is practically like a fucking labor genocide going on right now. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, Phil, because maybe this is a misinformed opinion, but part of me feels like, yes, it's their inability to respond to the crisis, but I think this also reflects poorly on their ability to create legislation for like the past 20 years also, right? because a lot of these conditions are pre-existing and they're being exacerbated (laughs) by the virus. (laughs) Pre-existing conditions. In a way, that's sort of, that's when I was thinking about the flu, when people make that flu comparison, Mm -hmm. that like so much about not just... Like the the conventional like positivist like way of looking at this is that like the the ability of governments to respond to a crisis is contingent on whatever their political economy was like before the crisis, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that's actually not that's not the only thing. There's it's also the way that everyone understands whether or not the government is responding is conditional on the political economy that preceded the crisis, because if all of those deaths <laughs> and la- labor violations and, uh, you know, em- employer, uh, 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 exploitation of workers was acceptable, tolerable, and even encouraged by the national labor relations board prior to the crisis, right. then obviously it's going to be not just you know, the case that we do a shitty job, but we're going to then justify it as if people are fucking deserving of medals. That's the thing that's going to happen. Right. Right, Because you're going to have to spin it, put a silver lining and make a hero out of somebody. It's that like we already will be programmed to do to accept a certain to be tolerant of a certain level of deaths and a shitty response and a redistribution of power in, in a way that advantages the capitalist class after the crisis. Yeah. yeah I mean, thousands mm-hmm. of people, even if thousands and thousands of people die in New York state alone or something, Andrew Cuomo is going to f- get a fucking gold star after this. Unless yeah. we you know? see to it that he doesn't. Which Unless we he must. dies of yeah, COVID, we must see that he doesn't. Get one right, that's true. Yeah. There's something already <laughs> said to me in our com- in a conversation. I was talking to him about something and I, I can't remember what, but I was trying to make a historical analogy and you know he reminded me he's like you know history's helpful as a sort of um like a metric for some of these things and even as like a comparator but it fundamentally can't give you a script or a um a real way of making sense and like taking action uh a routine for like taking action in in moments like this um you need something else but the other thing i was thinking about was just sort of you have to know where to look because people are already giving us models and ideas for what resistance and sort of a declaration of rights for workers looks like uh, at right. this moment. You have to like hunt, not like a, um, not like a truffle pig. You have to be more <laughs> like a foxhound. Um, right. And uh, I love truffle hogs, but I mean, but I was. <laughs> Sort of, uh, I was looking at uh, the garbage workers in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Who are refusing to, they're refusing to pick up garbage and they're just going to let garbage yeah. uh, go in the street because they don't have PPE and they're not getting hazard pay and the co-pays for their insurance, you know, have grown extensively in recent years. And so like the... You know, they have every reason. And now they also have the power because it's springtime and garbage is going to start to stink. And hell yeah. yeah. And so they actually have all of this leverage right now. So, like, and that people is, are very afraid of garbage 
in the midst of something like this too. Absolutely. Just when I also have this on the recording, PPE is uh, personal protective equipment. Yes. Just right. saying. Welcome to um, your new acronyms, folks. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. A new, it's not philosophy, politics, and a whole new world. PPEs, there's NPIs, which are non-pharmaceutical interventions. Yeah. I mean, I think the big concern is, and I know that, I don't know, I know, I know that like uh, among a certain, let's say, cohort of uh, millennial uh, leftists, it is... Uh, probably extremely overbearing the amount of uh, Simpsons references that they make. And I am no exception. Um, so I'm sorry to be making one again, but the, you're allowed th- two per episode. Well, I think that, okay, so this is my one. I will just use one this episode. I hope, no, I think I might've already used one earlier. They don't roll anyway, over, by the way. Okay, my yeah. point is, my point is, um, I think one, you know, one of the big concerns is like, this, okay, there's a fantastic episode where uh, Homer runs for like, uh, what is it, like garbage commissioner or something like that? Oh my that. god, yes! And he it's becomes or, or waste, 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 waste management, management director. Yeah, him, right? some, like something like that. And Steve Martin is the one he ousts. Um, but basically, so that episode ends with essentially they have just completely filled up the like the entire town with with trash because uh, they've re- they've refused to. Like the as a municip- municipality, Springfield has completely refused to, to like actually do, and partially through Homer's leadership, right. has refused to essentially deal with like the problem of you know like I don't know where you put trash Garbage, or whatever. Yeah. Um, right. And it literally ends up in they decide that it will be easier to move the town. <laughs> so from that right. episode forward, Springfield is a couple miles like due east or something of where it used to be. Beautiful. <laughs> because anyway, just say not maybe not a useful analogy. But, no, I uh, think it is. No, it, it totally is because it's like if you actually like stop and you listen to everyday people, right? You will understand exactly what you need to do to be a leader in this time, right? Yeah. Or you could listen to Brookings and hear about how instead you could maybe move the town three miles further east yeah. and it will bypass your town and yes. go to the next one. Or as we talked about last time, listen to the Rand Corporation and uh, get right. your list of expendable cities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, which were one of the ones that we decided were like, we were joking, we're like no longer. I, don't um, know. I can't remember. I think I said Buffalo. But, yeah, but I was so, trying to be the Rand person. I was trying to, it was, it was inhabiting their mind. So I think they would have said Buffalo. Yeah, probably. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's very cold there, you know, but like COVID doesn't really survive in the cold from what I heard. (laughs) Wink, wink. So Buffalo should be fine by themselves. I heard it's cold there. Um, (laughs) Anyway, Um, Well, I mean, so and that's kind of the thing is like, you, you know, Bezos releases this letter that's like, I'm so sorry, this stuff's stuck in China and it's taking too long to get here. And in that very moment, he's moving the town three miles east and saying, you know, if any of you die on my watch under the conditions on which I am employ you. You know? Yeah, actually, it is a good metaphor because also this is a situation where, practically speaking, you know, Jeff Bezos like owns a huge chunk of supply chain. Yeah, frankly, but yes. he placed the order. He did everything in his power, right? quote wink right he placed the order right so he his intentions were there it's just not really his fault that it didn't work out and thousands of his workers died right Mm -hmm. he's not trying to help people ineffectively he's covering his ass (laughs) yeah this is a receipt not an inept attempt at aid and I think right. that's a really important distinction that we you need to apply to everything you hear right now that someone says is good news. Yeah, you I know? think though I think yeah. we should also be 
like I think probably the listeners of this podcast are like ever aware of this, but like the reason that we like we shouldn't even be thinking about well, we should always be thinking about Jeff Bezos in some way, shape, or form. But like we shouldn't the the, the fact that we've in the minds of sort of like liberal like you know whatever like center left America or stepped backwards into this mindset of like you know expecting that like the rich industrial like barons of america are like going to save us is like only because we've essentially gutted the welfare state over the last 30 years and like well i mean it's sort of yeah it's sort of it reminds me of these these images that you would see produced by like the civil defense administration in the 1950s where they would say that like you know we've got a really great way of preparing for bad nasty events in the united states and it had these concentric circles and there was like the first the first real people to respond that's business and the family and then like if they oh fail boy, the then family. you go to the local governments and if they fail then the state governments and if then if they fail the federal government steps in so it's this sort of this idea of forbearance and 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 subsidiarity but like mm-hmm. why on earth and, and like and this is obviously rehearsed all the time uh, you know, you listen to NPR, you listen to Trump, you're going to hear these things over and over again. And it's like, why is the priority or the sort of like ontological priority, uh, when it comes to like crisis situations at all resting in like these private, uh, the idea that private actors can like save the day. Well, right, I think and the private actors who full well know or believe that they will not be held responsible and that they will be donned a hero at the end of this. And I think, and I think in some ways actually it has, uh, it has to do with a lot of like kind of broader misconceptions and how we think about the economy generally. Cause you know, one of the things I'm thinking about right now too, is like, uh, there, like there's actually, there's this great, um, like Stephanie Kelton thing actually who we were talking about in the last, uh, episode, but, um, you know, Stephanie Kelton, great, uh, economist and, uh, one of the preeminent voices in uh mmt modern monetary theory basically Mm -hmm. saying like it's a you know it's a we always talk about um things like uh how you're gonna how you're gonna like pay for federal programs by saying like oh well who's gonna pay for it how do you how do you tax the the rich enough and it's interesting because even you know some of her criticisms of uh the sanders campaign yeah actually the the 20 uh 2020 and to a certain extent the 2016 uh sanders campaign were essentially like you don't like yes you might want to talk about taxing the wealthy as a redistributive measure or as a measure to like think about what's the impact going to be on wealth inequality that's very important but fundamentally in terms of paying for programs you can just pay for the program like we don't need to worry about like this idea that um you know there was like a viral tweet a couple of days ago that was that was widely mocked on twitter that was like someone being all caps like why aren't any billionaires buying masks and and giving them to everybody or whatever um and it's like fundamentally that's not how it works like billionaires just are a billionaires are just wealthy people because they benefit from extreme wealth and income inequality (laughs) um like fundamentally they're not like billionaires are not the source and end of all like money that's something that's like the fucking federal reserve which no one like cares or thinks about for the most part you know so just yeah, I mean, there is this question of right. like, uh, even the phrase taxpayer dollars right. is really sort of a misnomer. The money right. is, it comes from the Federal Reserve. It is not, the money for these programs is not necessarily in, it originating in taxation. Yeah. Right. It's Disney bucks. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, it's also worth noting, Phil, that, you know, the phrase like 
taxpayer dollars is essentially a, a code for like middle class white people's money. Yeah, of course. Right? Like it's a it's a dog right. whistle to like white men. Yeah. So, right. you know, anytime yeah. that anytime that that basically gets said, you should just pretty much write off that you know, whatever that person is saying. It's like well, the, I mean, it's the something safe that just word of every regional sales manager. Well, right, but right. it's also a very, I think has been an alluring, I think after the financial crisis, this became an alluring way of like tapping into, you know, okay, if we can't like mobilize class consciousness, maybe let's tap into people's identities as taxpayers. But I think that that's, I think it's fundamentally misguided because it does channel these things. And it also gives people a very false impression of the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy, which in a right. moment yeah. like this is like having a wrong impression of those things. This idea that we somehow have to like get the CBOs, you know, anointing with chrism um, you know, before we like do anything. This is just absurd. Sorry, I'm Catholic, you know. That's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's not. Yeah. I think, I think that's actually like, a, it's a very good, um, it's a very good thing to think about, especially when we start thinking about sort of the medical supply chain component of this, right? Because we sort right. of talk about like the mass market commercial situation a, a little bit, but like, you know, one of the things that we were talking about on the Twitch stream the other day um, was, I think it was Mondays, right? Was about the medical supply chain. And I, I'm sorry, Phil, because you said I kind of blackpilled you during the stream and I apologize. But that's why it that was, was really good that that conversation happened while we were watching Artie play Animal Crossing. Also subscribe to our Twitch <laughs> stream. We are now officially, um, what's the word for it on Twitch? Are we partners? Whatever. We're like in the, you know. We've we're been in the pro- upgraded. We've been upgraded uh, to to the level of basic dignity on Twitch. <laughs> um, so if you if you like, I don't know, uh, have in the Bezos an, in the Bezos ecosystem that puts you um, slightly above a warehouse worker, um, <laughs> right, below yes. anybody who works in the front at Whole Foods. True, um, but we do have. Uh, but you can, if you, for example, do have a, a Prime account with Evil Bezos, you can um, pitch us a subscription now if you are so inclined. Yeah. Just yes. saying. Please continue. Sorry to just get that pitch out there. Yeah, totally. I mean, no. So we, um, yeah. So we were talking about this on the stream, and I sort of went into the frustration that I have with the concept that under our current sort of iteration of capitalism, let's yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mystery hinges on the idea that the supply is unlimited, right? It's like a video game store, that the numbers of the availability within the store are sort of more of a construct and not an actual physical quantity, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like, we have that in the concept of limited drops. The entire supreme empire is built on this idea of sort of artificial scarcity being the only scarcity that exists under neoliberal capitalism, right? right? It's all conceptual. No, that's totally true. Actually, it's like if you have, um, what, what, what is it? It's like if like people, people think probably I would imagine about things like, uh, APIs, AKA like, um, active pharmaceutical ingredients, the Mm -hmm. way that they think of like potions in a final fantasy store, like you can just get more or all crafting, the time. Crafting, yeah. right? Just go back out and hit rocks and you'll get more, you know, whatever you well, need. Well, that's a daily limited resource, so that's different. But anyway. <laughs> right. Uh. So whatever, fishing, bugs. So, you know, fundamentally, this is a lie, right? This construct is a lie. The, the foundation that our entire conception of like consumerism is built on is false. In the contemporary era, yeah. Yeah, and so the, you know, the idea that sort of, Everything 
we've got sort of, if you go back to the beginning of whatever objects being produced, that somehow, somewhere, there is an unlimited supply of the materials. It might be harder, it might take longer, but it's mm-hmm. there somewhere, right? So that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. At all. And we sort of talked about the issue with like, okay, so where do the chemi- like chemicals come from, right? The raw ingredients. Yeah. Uh, are those chemicals still being made at the moment? How are they going to get there? Is the shipping going to take longer? Can they even be shipped out of China? Yeah. Then they're going to be shipped to India. Well, India is not accepting deliveries from China now. Yeah. Actually, I, I spent I spent a good portion of the afternoon um, reading a bunch of industry press on this. Oh, cool. Um, and it's kind of it's interesting to see what people are beginning to talk about. There's there's a lot of like um, let's not sound any alarms uh, language right now well yeah let's let's not undermine everyone's fundamental idea of how the economy works yeah and or belief in the ability of like apis to reach uh like you know like end end stage production stuff but i think it's interesting because you know a lot of them are pointing out things like um you know things where like we know and have been signaled in in some elements of the press um recently like you know depending on uh which country you live in uh i think for the united states it's like 70 percent um of the drugs that you have access to or take are um, either like the active pharmaceutical ingredients are produced in China. The drug themselves are uh, basically produced in China. Or the casein. Or yeah, like elements of them are um, in, I think in the EU, that's like 80% uh, Mm -hmm. or something like that. And a lot of them do. Yeah. I'd go through this kind of like, you know, obviously we know that the glo- like the global supply chain is this, is this gigantic monstrous beast that is like, built for this like just in time delivery all the time um mm-hmm. and and like hitting a bunch of different like ports and things so a lot right. of stuff comes from china gets like processed in india for example right. uh or in one case for example you know one of the like one of the industry press uh things that i was looking at today was uh calling out like you know in some ways we really can't even predict how how big of an impact there could be because this is such a because this is a global pandemic because this is a global outbreak like we have to consider that just in um they brought up that like just in uh puerto rico uh Mm -hmm. after hurricane maria like Mm -hmm. um you know a lot a lot of people don't talk about this but like there was a huge disruption to like the entire united states um drug supply because for a lot of things especially apparently biologics um no we, we even talked about of, this on the show oh, because my yeah, ivig was affected right yeah, yeah my ivig was affected because a lot of the storage and refrigeration facilities were damaged during hurricane maria and they were prioritizing yeah. trying to get the electricity back to those not to citizens and residents of puerto rico right and then they couldn't even do that and they lost so much stock i had to ration my ivig and i only got half my dose for three in a row. Yeah. And I guess mm-hmm. to, to sort of just like maybe, you know, not belabor this too much, but I, I want to point out one of the things that is concerning is that while I will say that, yes, the industry press is being very, you know, uh, steady hand with this and saying mm-hmm. like, there's nothing to worry about now, but like we could, we're going to continue to watch this, et cetera. Um, most of the, most of the press and the industry groups that I've, I've looked at um, things like, I don't know, this like European fine chemicals group that I was reading today, which cool. seems like pretty weird and revanchist. And like for like the past three months, it's been yelling about China. Sounds purely evil. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah they, There's no way it could be good. They're all about like um, re renationalizing or not really nationalized, but like re- repatriating basically like uh, pharmaceutical chemical production back to the EU essentially. But basically it's interesting because a lot of them 
almost universally it, it calls out things like um things like ibuprofen and paracetamol are like the types of right. things which are like the most likely to face supply chain issues like mm-hmm. a lot of the common and uh most common and generic drugs will actually be hardest hit because apparently i don't know it, it sounds like um with more recent or expensive and brand name drugs, a lot of uh, that stuff is like produced in, in like, like that mm-hmm. doesn't, that stuff doesn't sell out as quickly mm-hmm. um, or, or get like, which I'm sure has something to do with like its prices in general too. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. It's just like something to, we'll obviously follow this. And now I have a whole s- new slew of um, industry watch to do. But, right. Yeah. I mean, even when this was just the prospect of Wuhan being shut down, yeah. Right. There was an idea that there would be an impact on the global pharmaceutical supply chain and other types of like medical equipment, single use medical equipment, the packaging for sterile medical equipment, the equipment to sterilize medical equipment, the chemicals to do these tests in the lab. The labs are like like lab tests are not like a video game. And, either. All, of, and all of this <laughs> is not even to mention shipping. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Wuhan actually is a huge industrial hub in China. And China has dealt with this responsibly. And the rest of the supply chain had an opportunity to anticipate this problem. And they have not reacted or responded. They have done it too slowly, just like Congress. And there's, you know, some of the companies that are there are like PepsiCo, you know, uh, Siemens is there. I think that they like make a lot of the European Peugeot and Citroen cars there. Mm -hmm. Um... You know, this could be like, or Citroen, sorry, this could be like something that disrupts the auto market or durable goods market like four years from now. And that's <laughs> yeah. right. No, I mean, that's that's pro- part of the problem with the way that we've modeled this, the effects and the legislation based on them is that we've defined it. I mean, as as I guess you I imagine you would do, you want to you make a declaration of an emergency. And that is. What that is, is it implies a certain idea about time. There is a period of emergency and then there's a period where the emergency will be over. And the, with something like this, there's really no clear sense of what the ending looks like. There are ripple effects, after effects that push off any concept of an ending. It's the very least you cannot artificially try to specify an ending. Right. You know, again, like I got, an, I did an interview with somebody the other day who was like, um, "So, when do you think the governor's executive order will expire on uh, the, you know, uh, shelter in place?" And I was like, <laughs> "What?" I was like, "Well, <laughs> it won't be Easter. Probably going to be Pentecost, <laughs> at least Pentecost, but oh probably not Pentecost." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, we, we, my, my, I guess we'll call them quarantine cell. Uh, and I last night went around the table and did uh, did a Price is Right style like like over under or I guess just over on like, uh, you know, when when the quarantine would end. And it just we basically all just came to the conclusion <laughs> that like no one has any idea and like we're just going to guess. So, yeah, now we have yep. money on it. But well, yeah. you know, maybe that's the new economy all, you know, based on gambling and public health <laughs> speculation. That's yeah. just as uh, as valid and relevant as the stock market. We've already we've already gambled our twelve hundred dollar checks from, <laughs> from from the federal government. Um, so going to need another one of those. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah, we didn't even talk about that, but just one. Come on. Yeah. One of the, yeah, one one. Of the things just that one. actually 
Should we just emphasize that again? It will only be one. Yeah. <laughs> one one-time payment ever. of twelve hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, you know, it's just like one country. Too. Yeah. Like there's right. a lot yeah. of other countries. Like yeah. oh, God. Um. Anyways, yeah. So it's interesting actually because when we were talking about this on the stream and I think it's important to mention in the context of this conversation also um, we got a question uh, asking if they should start hoarding their medications or you know getting more supplies and in anticipation of like a a medication shortage right Mm -hmm. and I think like the thing is like don't let your prescriptions lapse fill them on time be on top of it try and get three month prescriptions so you don't have to go out to the pharmacy as much but like do not ration and do not hoard your medication do not go off your medication unless you have a conversation with your doctor and they tell you to please and thank you moving on yeah so just you know get that disclaimer out there moving on to the next part of the pharmaceutical conversation which is a um a fantastically unprecedented and inappropriate designation for Gilead. <laughs> um, Gilead. Just doing what it does best, you know? <laughs> All um, these characters returning in the second season. Well, this is like, I guess I would say, for example, like, you know, it's one thing to talk about um, drug supply chain and uh, the, like, the provision of pharmaceuticals. We've also, I think, in you know, in our last episode, we talked a little bit about how the sort of the the idea of oh just like wait for the uh wait 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 out for the vaccine or whatever right. is a fundamentally flawed um proposition um but yeah it, nevertheless there are, obviously there are a number of companies going for this i saw for example like uh abvi like dropped the actually uh, in a very in a very different move from what gilead is doing here mm-hmm. abvi actually dropped the patent for one of its um like antivirals that is just that is literally in testing they don't know whether it's going to work them. or not but yeah i guess good on them um there are other you know other companies are testing obviously there are less than like 60 drugs that like pre-existing drugs that are be, being tested for efficacy in different uh, clinical trials. Actually, many of them in uh, right here uh, at, I think, uh, while Cornell, I'm not sure is where maybe the testing hmm. went in. But anyway, the... Um, maybe that are Presbyterian. Yeah, I, I, I forget. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll fact check and cut it if I was wrong. This is Daniel, Beatrice's screen reader program. Artie meant Mount Sinai. But um, if one of those was wrong. Um, but basically... Should we just name every hospital? Columbia, no, no, no. Presbyterian, no, no, no. Sloan Kettering, um, NYU Langone, Bellevue. Uh, but yeah, um, Gilead has... Uh, Gilead is working on... No, not even working on... Gilead developed a drug that was for what? The Ebola? The last Ebola Remdesivir, outbreak? Remdesivir, yeah. Yeah. And they have just filed for orphan drug no, set. Not even filed. On they Monday, were they were approved. Granted. It. Right. Yes. For uh, orphan drug status for its uh, <sighs> patent protection. So, B, do you want to explain what that means? So, I'm not a healthy person. <laughs> Correct. I have an autoimmune disease that's very rare. It's what's called an orphan disease. There are very few people that have it. Therefore, there are very few people that study it. And, and the, by very few, B means there are about 12. Right. But I think <laughs> orphan disease is like, I think, less than... 200,000. Yeah. Right. I was going to say, it's like there's a big a range, right? That's like, the FDA designation. Like me and Steve Way are like the smallest 
batch of orphan diseases, yep. right? Like for the most part, these are like relatively large They're diseases. Like ultra but, rare holographic orphan disease. But Very the cool. patient population of of like a two hundred thousand patient group is not considered to be a profitable margin for these companies that mm-hmm. make pharmaceuticals and do these studies. So even though they get federal money to do these studies and develop these drugs, and even though they get to profit off of it with $79 million in the case of remdesivir. Right. So even though they get to then also for sure profit off it exclusively for a period of time, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to, quote, incentivize companies to make drugs for these poor, sad little orphan diseases that no one cares about and no one has, even though sometimes it's 200,000 people. Yeah. It's just too hard to make things for people out of the good of your heart when you're not going to make enough money. So what what the U.S. government does is they give you a special designation, they give you a little star, say good on you for taking care of the orphan diseases. You get an extra term to profit on this drug exclusively. Seven years. And you get to take a tax credit of 25% of your R&D costs off the top. Yep. Oh my God. They gave this to Gilead for remdesivir, which on again, Monday. They how gave much it. money yeah, did not, they give them before for development? $72 million? $79 million, $79 million. already spent in government funding for the development of the drug. Right. Do you know... So they're going to get... They get to uh, double dip that then, right? Well, yeah, because I, w- I want to point out... So there are two things that are that are morally outrageous here, and I hope... I know that you're sitting down, B. I can see you. I hope the two of you are sitting down. I assume you are because we're recording a podcast. I'm trying to breathe. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I hear that. I've been all standing podcast recently, but I've, I've sat now. Yeah. Consider, uh, what was it? I don't know if, did you say this on the, on the podcast or did, were you, uh, were you more vague about it? But much like the um, scientists at uh, the Trinity site, I hope that you are lying down, belly down on the ground, uh, <laughs> head away from the, the explosion. Yeah. yeah. Feet mm-hmm. facing the blast. Uh, for this. Your neck. Um, okay. So first of all, just as a background, uh, the orphan drug act, um, like the drugs protected by this tend to, be, first of all, obviously again, these are the, the intention behind the orphan drug act as B was explaining is like to incentivize quote unquote, uh, companies to uh, to to develop drugs for like things like rare genetic diseases or something like that. These typically and, tend to be incredibly heroic, insane yes, not, stem cell right, crazy not shit. To develop something for like a global pandemic, for example. Mm-hmm. Of Again, which, remember who knows? it comes down to the qualification yeah. comes so, down to the size of the customer pool. Oh, right. So right. here's the but here's the thing. So when you have the status on at like uh, I guess. Is it yeah? Oh, median the median cost for a drug protected by the drug, uh, not protected by, but a drug with Orphan Drug Act designation, the median cost uh, for a year of treatment is ninety eight thousand five hundred dollars mm-hmm. uh, for Orphan uh, Drug Act drugs, uh, compared with five thousand dollars for drugs that are not protected as such a class. And are you ready for the real kicker? Because mm-hmm. this is the real problem, and I expect this is exactly precisely why why one Gilead um, applied for this in the first place and two why Gilead stock immediately soared after it was approved this is the biggest mistake the Trump administration has made I think so do you know one very important thing that Orphan Drug Act allows tell Hmm. us already it protects the drug 
from uh, being subject to compulsory licensing. Oh my god! Yeah, there we go. And let's uh, can we, meaning, can we just like restate yeah, something though. You too? can't seize production on it, essentially. Right. Yeah. It's and the idea is that like it's given to drugs only because they have no reasonable expectation of profitability. That's right. the right. whole point. Mm-hmm. And so that cle- that provision clearly has no teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. No, this is some craven shit. It right is here. the most inappropriate decision that they've made in this administration about like public health, I think, and healthcare. It is so stupid. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the sort of ways that certain legislation like orphan like the orphan disease classification, this is the first time that we've really seen it horrifically abused, but as already was mentioning, the classification in and of itself has lent to like a, a an inherent sticker price increase yeah. on these drugs mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily correlate to the actual cost, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's a similar thing that's sort of involved in the transportation side of pharmaceuticals and biologics, which is the specialty drug classification, yeah. which changes who is allowed to transport it and whether or not hospitals are allowed to get a bulk discount right, on right, it. Right, right, totally, yeah. So... Um, Yikes. That also typically tends to massively inflate um, drug costs, right? And yeah. one of the things that I remember very viscerally during the sort of ACA situation was that, like, a lot of the shit that I heard around, like, or read on, like, you know, pharma blogs was, like, about, you know, sort of anxiety that hospitals were going to, like, get some sort of bulk bargaining power on specialty drugs. You know, yeah, like the stuff like Humira, Biologics, you right. know, some HRT products. Right. And it's really interesting because during, you know, between 2003 and 2013, it like massively ballooned. There had been like only ever 300 of them since they started the policy in the 70s, I think. And then, you know, in 10 years, you suddenly have thousands. Right. Mm-hmm. And that this just became sort of an industry standard for a certain class of drugs that they decided were going to be premium. To become premium in the market. Well, right. I mean, it's like capitalists are, they're not stupid, right? They realize that (laughs) you could do this, like that the law wasn't just for the initial version of the drug. You could apply the provisions to future versions of the same drugs that became blockbusters. Mm -hmm. Right. And and Congress has just like been sitting on its ass since uh, that happened. And it's like capital is just so much quicker in its uh, ability right. to respond to these incentives than, than the state. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, so where do we go well, from here? Well, uh, where we go from here, I think is considering that, uh, they have, you know, eliminated the possibility now, uh, that compulsory licensing could be the thing, um, nationalize Gilead and then nationalize yeah. the rest of the pharmaceutical industry or internationalize, you know, whatever. Yes. Pick your poison, really. Seize Gilead and then the whole rest of it. Yeah. Right? yeah. If, you, if you're talking to somebody and they say something like, we can perfect capitalism, we can save capitalism <laughs> from itself, we can regulate capitalism in a way. All you have to do I'm is a capitalist to my bones. Is oh my say God. anything, illustrate any sort of regulatory attempt to, to like uh, redistribute health or, or the benefits of, of these life-saving treatments uh, or at least prevent these companies from just profiting uh excessively and you know restricting the distribution of of needed treatments uh, on the basis of cost from for many of these years it doesn't matter how well you think you've regulated it who cares uh yeah. they still have one 
structural power and two, the ability to evade regulations. Because even if you violate it, what really yeah. is the penalty? Um, right. And right. So, exactly. Yeah. Much like we, yeah, much like we were talking about with Purdue Pharma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this, this is year. again, this is, we've been talking about this for a very long time. time. Yeah. Well, which is why I think we you always, have always say, lived here, Phil. Right. <laughs> oh, I yes. think that's why we always say that, like, you know, that, yeah, you could say we're a health, like healthcare specific focus on, you know, analysis of capitalism and contemporary politics. But one could argue that they, that healthcare is the penultimate product of capitalism, second only to capitalism itself. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The preserve, the, the uh, ability to determine who lives and dies, the uh, yeah. ability to extend life. The power um, over life and death. Isn't exactly. that the ultimate power always in, in our popular, um, you know, literature or whatever? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which is why I have an idea. What's okay. that? So I was thinking, you know, we've been seeing a lot of medium posts go around, right? That are penned by um, Silicon Valley marketing people, right? Uh, who, uh, have experience making viral apps and think that that somehow translates into, you know, knowledge about epidemiology, right? I think we take those people and we put them together and we say, listen, here's your task. You need to develop and market a SIM, right? We're going to take all the people like you, we're going to plug you into capitalism. You get to keep playing this game, (laughs) as many people as you want, you accumulate all the gold you want, customize your house, Right. right? We give them animal crossing but it's the matrix right right yeah so we put them in the sim and then we can go and take care of everyone else and they can live in the sim happy right and we'll make sure that they're taken care of we will take such good care of you guys you just need to plug in and get the fuck out of the way we'll even give you ubi don't worry don't worry you'll get a virtual ubi yeah you'll get, okay, yeah you'll get something you'll be innovating so much but you'll really be in hotel rooms somewhere in davos plots you won't even know it right i right. feel like uh, also this is basically the plot of the dispossessed oh i was gonna say this is also uh this is also valve's uh strategy with cheaters and counter-strike they just instead of banning them because they know that they'll like create new accounts they just uh, put them all together. <laughs> yeah, you can all cheat really? together. Yeah, yeah. They don't ban. They they like they realize that banning cheaters uh, was like a or just like you know people who are awful in game was like a completely like futile strategy. So they just literally put them all together. Occasionally, you'll get one of these games where you're just like, "What the fuck is going on?" And it's like, "Oh, cool." It's like you can only do Mad Max in here, guys. Everyone else is gonna play by the rules and have a good time. Go have fun. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You want a battle dome? Do it over there. They can have fun right. with their invisible hands and their herd immunity. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can take um, we can take the Great Pacific garbage patch and turn it into a special <laughs> oh island for all of them. Yeah. And they can go live there, and they won't be taking anyone's sovereign land anymore. How about yeah. that? You know, it's like just take all of the fishing nets and make it into a terraformed paradise. I do actually like this idea that, so obviously, you know, it would be very difficult to sort of like both create the technology too, and then implement without, you know, basic like civil liberties problems, um, like a a transition (laughs) into some sort of like matrix like state for a bunch of these hyper capitalists. But no, no, no. I know that there are logistical issues with that. So (laughs) one thing that we could do, (laughs) one thing that we could do to make this a more tangible, feasible possibility is what if we had a federal 
digital jobs program where all those people who were extreme hyper capitalists were basically actually, you know, you mentioned Animal Crossing B. They could be put to work as game designers. They could be tasked <laughs> with, uh, they could be paid uh, federal wage to basically build out, um, you know, addictive capitalist oh. loops for games like Animal Crossing. Yeah. Mm. There is a, a job guarantee <laughs> that will get a lot of uh, the wrong people out of the economy and <laughs> open up space, as you will, Listen, as you as you may think. We understand that people hate you, but, <laughs> but we get you. You know, really, we understand that, you know, you're cruel, but you're creative. And you, you just love like to, to kill the, people, but you, it's really creative. You just like to see the numbers go up. We've all played Destiny. We've all been there. We've all we've all wanted to do what you do. So now help make everyone be able to do what you do because you're so creative. But you know, just we're not gonna hurt people in real life. Yeah. Am I talking to a serial killer or a stock trader? Who's to Who say? Knows? You know, like I love this plan. I think this is great. <laughs> I think this is perfect, Artie. You've you figured it out. This is like yeah. the, video you. games are going to be so good. Yeah, <laughs> they're going to be well, also, really you know, there's hard. All this, there's all that talk of you know, like all of the the uh, burnout in game design uh, studios because they work them so hard. So like, but these guys fucking love to be worked really hard. So I <laughs> yeah, think this exactly. is kind of perfect. Yeah, they. I mean, all they do is talk about how people should uh you know they how people get meaning and value in their lives through work right that's why they want people yeah. on medicaid to work so exactly, exactly. Anyway, oh perhaps, my god this is already oh perhaps this is so perfect on. so um, perfect it's funny when i did that out, first we need to figure out how we can yeah we can slip this, this is to this is reverse dickensianism yes <laughs> <laughs> it's funny no, when i did dickensianism that for, for those who want it right <laughs> Perfect. The the glide path is all there. We're ready to go. Um, yeah, it's funny when I I did the first ugh, and I was about to do a chef's kiss noise, and then I realized that might be really really obnoxious to hear through a microphone. Yeah. Artie's face fell for a second because I think he thought he black pilled me or something. But I was actually just so excited about his beautiful <laughs> game design idea, and I think this is the best thing that we've ever come up with as a business model. I like this too. I'm, I'm into this idea. Um, okay. So I think this sort of, we sort of have a lot more that we could continue covering. Um, but I think that, you know, we'll just sort of push it to the next episode or to the stream maybe. Mm -hmm. And what do you mean? I mean, we could sort of talk about the New York ER report. I think that, I think that that is a very quick, Thing. Yeah, we should we should wrap up. Okay, that. cool. I, I think it's important to bring up. I do think it's important to take a moment to bring up the New York ER thing because it's extremely real. And if you're, I think that a lot of people not seeking this out, including people like us who live in New York who look out and see empty streets or and things like that. Right, like right. it's very easy to have a blind spot for and like think that you know maybe maybe things are all right. Right. essentially um i mean even you know where it's busy right now the fucking ER. Yeah. Um. I mean even I saw. There, there was a viral tweet thread that went around that was like a, a, a doctor at Columbia, um, mm -hmm. for example, who basically like, you know, was, was talking about how like, yes, the things he was talking about were, um, you know, pretty horrible and scary. But mm -hmm. like this, this thread was mostly like, you know, talking about how he's like maintaining normalcy and stuff. And it starts with this like kind of floral depiction of his like uh, walk along the streets to 
like uh, on the way to the hospital or whatever, seeing like everything, everything empty. And it's like painted in this like really pretty light or whatever. And like everything, you know, and th- this thread has like hundreds, like hundreds of thousands of likes on a bunch of the po- like the post and the thread or whatever. But if you like dig a bit more and look at a lot more accounts, there's, um, I don't know, some of like the, some of the stuff that we've been pointing out to be right or to me be. Yeah. Um, I was trying to see if they had confirmed which uh, hospital it was yet, but there was a thread um, that's getting way less attention than it should. That is a a screenshot of a text message between a physician in Philly and a physician in New York City. Um, And the text said, ran out of gowns tonight in the fucking COVID ICU. Emergency department out of even the fake thin yellow ones, staff using trash bags, ED attendings are livid. A bunch of positive patients are sitting on floors getting tubed one by one. Which should intubated. be horrifying to yeah. everybody. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, it's something something has been sticking with me that B said to me last night, actually, which is that, like, it's not like, you know, uh, and th- this is obvious, but, like, it's important to point out, like, people, like, people are talking about this as though, like, uh, emergency rooms are going to be overwhelmed. Like they're not already overwhelmed all the time. Like (laughs) emergency rooms are all, all the time, like packed. Where Mm -hmm. are those other patients? Right. And well, and it does in this, like the, the, the image of like people again, you know, getting intubated and stuff or like having like, or getting a fix with like ventilators, those, you know, lucky enough to still have for us, lucky enough to still have them for now or whatever. Right. Like, um, why are emergency the, rooms like so packed? sitting on the floor? You know, why are emergency rooms so packed usually? <laughs> because that's just a troll. We need Phil. Medicare for all. <laughs> no, I mean this is like yeah. I mean, this is, there's a re- this is all whatever. Again, no, I, no, all no, no, no. indices of the past before the crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. My uh, my my. I'll just like note my uh, my aunt is a PA at the like level one trauma ED and. Uh, in Oakland and like literally she like windmill high fives like everybody on staff if like there isn't a patient that like waits like longer than an hour like that's like a that's like a big fucking success for them so like you know just think like um this gets worse yeah so first of all like I don't know if anyone's seen anyone get intubated but you should never have to see that unless you need to it's terrible it should not be done with a patient sitting on the floor yeah, but so this right. is like normally something that happens behind a curtain, but you don't even have that luxury basically going on. You've got people on the floor getting intubated, which is is someone who's been trained to do it because they used to let lifeguards do it in Florida. It's terrifying to yeah. think of that being done in that scenario. Um, Can you explain intubation for people? Really I mean, cool. I was trained how to shouldn't. do it on a boat or on sand, and I think the idea of doing it on the floor is terrifying. You know, it's a very complicated way to put a respirator in directly, keep the Mm -hmm. airway open. So it's a it's a not minor thing. So Mm -hmm. the next text is the worst to me because this is the problem that I think no one's talking about. Um, Down to less than five beds opening another ICU tomorrow, but don't have blank. It's blacked out, redacted, don't have redacted to staff it yet. Parentheses, redacted people are all of the sudden not available. So, like, it's great that Cuomo is turning the Javits Center into a hospital. It will have 2,000 beds. It's great that Trump is sending the hospital boat with 1,000 beds. 
it's great that Cuomo's opening another three hospitals and other spaces that will be an additional 3,000 beds. However, staffing, where are the extra doctors? <laughs> right? These yeah. ERs have gone towards leaner and leaner staff operations over the years. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because they're trying to make money. Right? <laughs> right. And the problem is, is like we can build all the ventilators we want. We can build all the hospital beds we want. We can take every retired doctor and take them out of retirement. We can designate additional treatment powers under the law for nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, medical students, right? Right. And we will still run out of providers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem about having being a doctor be an elite profession, that requires heavy investment to get into. Hell yeah. You know? Totally. Like, this is why, you know, the, what AMA, the AMA has done to the profession of medicine is, is terrible. And we have an opportunity to undo that and change, you know, the way that these working relationships exist, you know, outside of the financial structure of a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's so much about getting the right person to do the right thing because this person's billing code gets this many dollars versus that person's billing code gets that many dollars, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the tasks being designated to various things in an emergency room, yes, have to do with expertise, but also have to do with like how it's billed, right? Mm -hmm. So if we eliminate that and we allow these teams to create working systems that are centered around patient outcomes... Just imagine what we could do if they were allowed to continue this research after this crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Well said, I think. So it's it's sort of another reinforcement of a point that I think we made in the in the patron episode. But crises, in addition to like, there's this some sense that like a, what a crisis should provoke is a major rethink, and a, mm-hmm. you know not just a change, but some some radical like moment of possibility. I think it also yeah. has the ability to push people to think too small. And there's this, this idea that like, well, we yeah. really need to do, I've, I've looked at some things that like deficit hawk type people have been saying over the last few days is like, we can't be attaching things that have nothing to do with this crisis and trying to like leverage this as a moment of opportunity. We need to be addressing the crisis, but the problem <laughs> amendment. What? is the system that is enabling these things to go on. The system itself is in crisis, not just the crisis is, is not just the, the public health emergency itself. So like, absolutely, we should be thinking about an NHS for the United States. Hell like, yeah. yeah. We've been, we've been. What about an international one? Exactly. Um, these, yeah. the crisis, if anything, should be something that sheds light on the working of the system. And, and like, do we need to do things that will enable us to, uh, you know, provide the, the quickest relief where, where it needs to go? Of course. But like, at the same time, the things that need to happen are ultimately structural if we're going to actually make those uh, changes. And I think that you see this with the with the response to the usage of the Defense Production Act. You know, the right. I heard the um, someone from Ford on the radio yesterday who was saying, you know, was being interviewed, and they were asking him, you know, do you think Trump should? be invoking or you leveraging the defense production act in, in, in a serious way, rather than just relying on you to produce what you can, when you can, because ultimately we're not going to have ventilators in serious supply. And I mean, they're not even going to have the production line started for it until something like April, May, 
late May. Yeah. Right. The majority um, won't yeah. come till June is what they're saying. Right. And so the idea that like, no, the crisis is terrible, but we have to keep things basically the way they are. Otherwise, you know, do the best that we can under this set of constraints. That's what actually will push this thing from a public health emergency and a crisis into something that will we will never be able to even remotely recover from. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. And the method of like business as usual is not going to help anyone in this scenario. This it's is just this not has to be a break, it's not, breaking yeah. moment. It's not, it's not think, that it's not enough to do. It's just the wrong thing to be yeah, doing. Of course. And it was <laughs> right. the wrong thing in the first place. Right. And I think actually, you know, in a way, uh, how to put it? I don't know. I, I, I think we're, I think that's probably a very good overall sentiment to, um, leave it on. But I do want to point out just two things just to bring, kind of slightly more attention uh, to these that uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, yeah. And maybe join us on Twitch later this week so that, uh, and we'll, yeah, get we'll talk about these things more, but yeah, yeah one With is soothing animal crossing music in the background. <laughs> uh, one is that, um, you know, we talked about Gilead sciences um, and their, uh, their drug remdesivir. Um, but it is, it's yeah, it's interesting because in addition to all this to all the fuckery that we talked about with with Gilead um and them getting orphan status for their drug they've also um ceased uh accepting compassionate use uh requests for remdesivir yeah uh <laughs> for people who want who are like desperate and dying of covid and who want to just try it um so that's yeah B, sorry B yep um, no it's fine i'm just it's um, not black pilling. It's just targeted, focused, concentrated, and specific rage. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, first of all, uh, the other the other thing I me- I wanted to mention that we like didn't really talk about is, um, for some reason, uh, under again the lovely leadership of Andrew Cuomo, um, New York State has begun uh, stock stockpiling uh, what's it called chloroquine. That uh, that drug that um, Chlor- uh, the, the yeah chloroquine drug. I think yeah, yeah. Uh, chloroquine which is that, a malaria drug which yeah is the drug that uh, Cuomo or the, the sorry the drug that uh, Trump um, accidentally ac- like accidentally basically said like yeah this cures it or whatever not necessarily accidentally who knows we but know like, that it won't kill anyone um, is what he said yeah then, like well, we don't know kill anyone it killed someone well actually so here's the here's the thing big public service announcement. Uh, cause I know that like th- this has been, this has been covered a little bit, but rarely is it actually explicitly stated what specifically has been happening. So people have, have noticed that, you know, you can order like while you, well, uh, obviously you'd have to get a prescription to get uh, chloroquine or chloroquine or whatever, um, as a, as a drug, the an- anti-malarial, which again, not proven like in the bet, the, the study with the most people in it that has been done over it is in China and they found that it basically did nothing. So don't look for this. And if you're Cuomo, you probably shouldn't be fucking and trying to stop offering it but, to you and telling you you have to take it. You have the right as a patient to refuse it. Just saying, but people basically have been doing things like ordering, uh, something that has like the same name, but is not the same compound chloroquine phosphate, uh, which people use to like clean fish tanks mm-hmm. and taking it, and people have been dying from that. Yeah. So PSA, 
that shit is bad for chemistry you. Chemistry <laughs> is about <laughs> anyway. processes of transformation. When something is a chemical derivative of the thing that it shares a name with, it does not mean that it is the fucking same. Right. So anyway. It's been transformed. I just wanted to make sure that those two things were like <laughs> stated. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, do you want to lead us out, B? Well, I think, you know, that, that, that wraps another massive death panel episode, <laughs> mostly covering COVID. But, you know, I'm, I had a good time sitting and talking with y'all. It's always very calming, hmm. even if it does get upsetting sometimes and frustrating. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think like if you're sitting at home and you're bored, um, maybe call your local official and bug them about why they haven't released all their prisoners yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> call Cuomo's office and tell them not to cut Medicaid. Um, Trust us. There are plenty of things they the haven't Blasio done yet. Just tell them to go to hell. Most or, of the things uh, that they need to do, they haven't done. Yeah. Right. Do not exactly. trust that they've done anything. And when we're done mm-hmm. with that, leave us a rating or review. Yes, please <laughs> never stop posting and also leave us a rating or review. On you can Apple do it Podcasts simultaneously. You open two tabs, rating or review in one, <laughs> bitching at your local representative in the other. Just, yeah, you uh, just make sure you're sending the extremely angry, expletive-laden uh, letter to your uh, elected and not to Apple Podcasts. Actually, um, I would love if we got a review that was like Andrew Cuomo. As long as it's five stars, asshole. I'm good with that. Yeah, leave comments for Andrew Cuomo in our podcast thing, but just make sure Andrew you give Cuomo it a five star review. Yeah, exactly. Tell us what you think about Andrew Cuomo in the reviews, uh, but uh, don't don't have the star rating reflect have the star rating reflect us and not Andrew Cuomo. How about that? Right. Yeah. Um, um, also, just to lead us out, I'm just going to leave you guys with a a joke hypothetical scenario that already and I came up with last night when we were watching Test Kitchen. So imagine a future where, you know, Test Kitchen does all this like shooting of like continuous footage and then they just like kind of dump it and they make videos. They're trying to like release videos of stuff it seems like maybe would have passed the waste bin, right? So B's, B's trying to do armchair contact tracing on the on the Bon Appetit. Imagine, imagine a scenario where everyone on the Bon Appetit kitchen, uh, Test Kitchen staff gets COVID, lives, right? They're all fine. Okay. Hypothetical. But you could play a guessing game trying to figure out who infected who first by watching <sighs> Bon Appetit videos. Trying to find, <laughs> trace back. So like Contagion 2011 starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Computer but Test enhanced. Kitchen. Yeah. Yes. I was just imagining myself oh my as God. Hercule Poirot trying to figure out <laughs> like which uh which british middle class person infected the other <laughs> i know i'm like i know we're all like barred at home but like it would be so many months of sitting here before i decided yes that is what i've spent my time on <laughs> <laughs> well if you're bored at home and you want another episode of death panel every week become a patron and um you'll get a also one. if you're not bored at home because there are a lot of people who <laughs> right. are not able to be bored at home right now. They don't well, have that you, luxury. Uh, I'll, so. I'll phrase it this way. Um, if you'd like to support the show and also get an extra episode every week, please do please become a patron. You get access to our entire back catalog of, es- of episodes as well, which as we've like mentioned, um, we've done a bunch on sort of topics tangentially re- related to some of the stuff. Like if you're looking for something to listen to, highly suggest going back and listening to some of our episodes about um, the corporate takeover of healthcare. Think of it like you're uh, watching a prequel. Yeah, because you'll start to notice how these ideas that we were talking about a couple months ago as being inhumane, insane, and dumb are somehow 
now applicable to the disaster situation. <laughs> so if you're looking for, you know, a way to try and analyze this and understand it, I think sort of looking at stuff like the bold goal is a good place to start. From Emana, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so become a patron, support the show. You'll get access to the, you know, private channels on the Discord. Join yep. the Discord. And I think that about does it, mm-hmm. right? All right. You know, we we got, well, yes, we'll figure this out, right? Somehow. <laughs> on the two, we, we, we the four of us, yes, we'll figure all of this out. Whatever you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, In exactly. Spends two hours critiquing, like, armchair... Um, uh, exceptionalism and then does it at the end. Right, exactly. And does it at the end. I alone can fix it. All right. Right. I think with that, um, stay alive another week and we'll see you next time. Hell yeah. This has been another episode of the Death Panel. Bye, guys. Bye bye. Bye.
Thank <laughs> you.